Hello everyone and welcome to this ESIP online conversation. My name is Fredrik Eriksson and I'm very pleased to welcome today Jörg Wutke, President of the European Union Chamber of Commerce in China. The topic for today's conversation is China and its economic development in light of a new annual report that was published by Jörg and his colleagues at the Chamber very recently. There are Few people in Europe and the world who come with the same depth of expertise and experience as Jörg in matters of China and its climate reform business. China has been his base for a long time and he has talked and written extensively about his experience as a businessman in the country, being part of both the period when waves of economic reforms catapulted China into much higher prosperity, as well as having a ringside seat now, watching current developments in China, a country that has matured economically and that now seems to gradually been shifting its view on economic openness. Hello, Jörg. Uh, good afternoon. I'm very glad to have you with me today. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, first of all, uh, I mean, congratulations to, again, producing a stellar report from the Chamber on policies in China and how European businesses are viewing this. This is a, a goldmine for anyone with an interest in understanding Chinese policies. And my hope and plan is that we can start our conversation there uh, about your top-line findings and takeaways from your exercise now and look at also how these takeaways sit in a broader analysis of China's economic direction. So let's start with your new position paper. What are the core takeaways that policy folks in Europe should pay attention to? Thank you, Frederick. And let me just derail you from the start. Let me begin with a commercial. Uh, as the European Chamber is a 20-year-old organization, and we have uh, now nine uh, offices across China, we are very unified uh, lobby organization. We are unlike, say, the Swedish, German or Belgian chamber, no trade promotion chamber. We are the advocacy group and uh, we have 1,700 members. And these members are divided in 35 working groups. So, uh, for example, in the banking working group, we have about 100 bankers, then chemicals, maybe 40. You have cosmetics, you have environment law and so forth. So the whole beast, as I'll call it, is put together by members, by active business people uh, and not by the chamber. Because it's very important when you lobby that actually you really have all the technical details ready and, and you can do this. I mean, this, this book is not just for informing people. It triggers a massive lobbying campaign. Myself as president, I have to see possibly between 20 and 30 ministers and vice ministers, and then the chairs of the working group then sort of roll it out. And on average, we have about 40 meetings in Beijing uh, in order to get this across. And of course, it's requested reading in the capitals around the world. It's very popular also in the White House because we are the best uh, technologically specific uh, group uh, that actually puts the paper, pen to paper uh, and, and the ideas. We have 430 pages. So if you download it, it's more like you have to look up your area. I don't think you want to read it cover to cover. The only person that does that is Prime Minister Li Keqiang, I was told, in seriousness. Um, so uh, we have um, 400 pages with uh, details. Um, and then we have, uh, out of those, 930 recommendations. That's very important to us, that we not just sort of lament and wail at the Great Wall of China, but actually come up 
with uh, points where we think uh, the Chinese government can do better. And uh, of course, we have also recommendations on top of it to the European officials, member states, as well as companies. But the essence of that report is then it's my duty to sort of come up with 35 pages of an executive summary that sort of puts the philosophy of how we see China in a couple of pages only. And this year's topic was self-reliance. It was something that I felt very strongly about witnessing the recent developments. We talk about 14.5, the dual circulation, the kind of Beijing leadership being concerned about the U.S. Uh, containing China, the kind of eagerness to onshore a lot of these, uh, these things. Now, self-reliance is, of course, uh, something that uh, you see also in other parts of the world, by British, by American, or by European, whatnot. We published a paper on this in January on decoupling. That's the worry that we have, as we are mostly global players. But in China, the self-reliance reaches deep, and of course, it has a Maoist DNA somewhere in the system, that China actually feels like they can do this because they can, meaning they're big enough continental-sized economy, and the economy has been doing well over the last 18 months, that gives them the confidence of actually decoupling more and having a stronger sense of self-reliance. Self-reliance itself, we have a little study in the booklet that shows that self-reliance is coming at a cost. We even put down a number to it because China now has GDP per capita of $16,800. And we assume, or the World Bank, they've done this for us. The World Bank assumes that China in 2050 will be, they're modeling through like this, at uh, 46,000, and there is the uh, very strong opening up agenda, which is above 50,000, and then we have the kind of self-reliance that is 30,000 something. So the gap between opening up and reform and self-reliance is a cool and staggering 25,000 US dollars per capita, meaning China has a choice. But you know, the choice has consequences for China, economic consequences, and as consequences globally for all of us, the growth machinery China might consider not to be the growth machine anymore. Yeah, indeed. And 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 I should also say congratulations to the 20th anniversary for the chamber. Uh, I didn't know that. And I can only I can only sort of attest to what you were saying about the high quality of the work. It's it is really stellar work. So so really congratulations uh, on all that. Well, thank you. Uh, the, the 20th anniversary, uh, it coincides uh, with uh, the 20th anniversary of WTO session of China. And Campbell was actually inspired uh, by Pascal Ami when he came to China and says, I don't want to sit down with German, Portuguese, French, whatnot. I want to sit down with insurance. I want to sit down with uh, chemicals, for example. And uh, that's where we realized it doesn't make sense to have national little groups doing that if we can pool all of that. And the chamber was founded in the spirit of Junji, in the sense opening up, China can do more, China can change, China can improve. And that sense is fading away, unfortunately. Indeed. So, so let's get in to some of the issues that you mentioned here. So you're talking about the 14th five-year plan. Uh, you mentioned due circulation. So if we're going to make sense of all this, so what what is it that China is trying to achieve in practice here? What does dual circulation mean? I mean, you, you see this topic coming up in sort of headline speeches from sort of senior people in the government or senior officials. 
but when you start to unpack it, it's a bit difficult to understand what it what it actually means. Is it is it about sort of a wholesale decoupling from the global economy? Is it more focused on specific sectors, specific technologies? What is it about? Well, the short answer to your question is we have no clue uh, because uh, it is something that came up about uh, two years ago. Uh, and uh, dual circulation, of course, means there must be two rings to it. And so my hunch on this one is it looks like a Victorian farthing bicycle, penny farthing, a uh, huge uh, tire in the front and very small in the back. Of course, the small in the back is the globalization, is the connection to outside world. And the big one is, you know, how much can we do back here at home without interference from anybody who wants to hurt China? So dual circulation is a strategy in order to uh, deal with a more difficult political environment and uh, it shows in some areas. I mean, we always had Made in China 2025, meaning China wants to not only absorb all these uh, technologies that would then become a global player in all of them. Actually, the global player part, I think, is not that relevant anymore. But what worries us is, uh, of course, that China is, is opening the door for some of us more than ever. At the same time, it is then basically closing the door, not only for us as exporters, but also for us uh, in a way that we engage with China on research and development and so forth. So in a way, um, it is something where in a sense it, uh, it appeals uh, to China. Again, continental economy can maybe get away with this. Certainly Sweden cannot, Germany definitely not. But um, it is something that gives us opportunities and huge disadvantages. The opportunities come from the point that China says, you know, I don't want a supply chain from outside the country. So why don't I just invite foreign companies to come here and do the damn thing here uh, and not in Malaysia or in America or in Europe? And that opened up opportunities such as for my own company uh, uh, leading to a $10 billion project in Guangdong or ExxonMobil has a $10 billion project. Uh, so uh, Volkswagen can have a majority. All of a sudden, the government was in a hurry and the hurry was in the manufacturing sector. That's also very important to see in connection with the 14th five-year plan. For the first time, China really does not emphasize the service sector. And that's where China was sparkling over the last years in and finance, in uh, the telephone directing drivers and whatnot. And uh, Xi Jinping very strongly feels about that service sector leads to exuberance and which much uh, a lot of rich people, but at the same time, makes China exactly as vulnerable as it was before. They want planes, they want battery materials, they want chemicals, and it's manufacturing he's looking after. So for everyone in the crowd of yours that is manufacturing, actually it opens up, the uh, dual circulation opens up possibilities. If you're in the service sector, you better read our report of where the challenges uh, are going to be. And it's very telling that the president has been, has been very tough and assertive recently in gaming, in educational, tutorial, uh, all these areas where basically he believes that they have come out of whack. Um, there is some IT rubber barons. Uh, and so I guess the Gilded Age for services is over. And uh, for manufacturing, uh, I think these are the good days. And I'm sure we're going to talk about this. So the president emphasized manufacturing, but then we have to turn our factories off because we have no energy. Yes, indeed. That, that small detail. I have some troubles understanding the economic logic of it. So the economic logic here, if you think in the framework of dual circulation, would be that, well, China's economy is maturing. There's going to be 
a lot more expenditure on domestic services. And when we do these domestic services, we want to find ways to make sure that we can build up Chinese champions or build up uh, a competitive Chinese base that make us much more reliant on domestic supply rather than global supply. So, and if that is the the way that the Chinese economy more broadly is going, which is sort of typical uh, rags to riches story, which is that the the more affluent you get, the more you're going to spend on services. Right. And now comes sort of a focus on manufacturing again. So what's the logic behind that? The logic is control. Uh, the Communist Party is all about control. Xi Jinping is all about control. It is like making sure that China is a self-sustaining economy to a large extent. That doesn't exclude that China will engage internationally, but always with the sense of the imperial past, meaning like it's me with a small country. It's me uh, ruling ruling this relationship. Uh, the Belt and Road is, is a magnificent example of that. The spoken hub that China actually projects on the world. It's never going to be multilateral. China doesn't have a history of multilateralism. So uh, in a way, um, we, have to, we have to just see that China is willing to sacrifice economic growth in order to have this control. That's very hard for people to understand because everything was growth and growth again. But as you've seen in the recent years, uh, particularly uh, how they dealt with Ant, uh, Alibaba, now with Tencent, as well as tutorial and so forth. This is all shaving off GDP. I mean, this is really trillions of dollars that, that are getting lost there. And uh, they, they want to do it for social reasons. Uh, social mobility has been declining, like in the US, also here in China. And hence the tutorials had to go uh, because they put in basically uh, exams only for rich people who can train their rich uh, kids to pass the test. Then, of course, um, there are all the other things that, uh, make it very clear to Xi Jinping that it might be cool if you have a mobile phone and you can you can have a noodle soup supplied to you within 30 minutes. That does not make you an economic superpower. And uh, so it's it's all about control. It's all about defense. Uh, clearly, the security apparatus has taken over economic policy making here. And I'm sure the NDRC, MIT, and all these smart people in these ministries a little bit pushed in the background basically just being told how to fix the problem and uh, make sure that China is not falling off uh, the scale when it comes to developing their own battery and, and so forth and so forth. No, it's, it's all about control. But uh, again, for uh, the, the Evergrande story, for example, it means deleveraging, de-risking a situation at the cost of GDP growth. And that's the new thing. Uh, Xi Jinping has made it very clear Globalization has basically made a small group of people rich. One percent of Chinese population has 30 percent of wealth that resembles the U.S. basically. But he wants to make sure that the pyramid that has been building up, few at the top, lots at the bottom, is basically turned into an olive that has a huge middle class and very few rich and very few um, uh, poor people. He is a social re-engineering mode. He, Xi Jinping wants to put his imprint. And that's when, you know, uh, you, you think like, why does China do it now? Well, he's not 50 anymore. The man is in a hurry. And China is in need of socially restructuring. So in many ways, I can understand the president doing just that. I, I question his toolbox, though. 
And this focus on manufacturing, I would imagine that we are talking about sort of specific areas of strategic technology that they are more concerned about. Is that true? I mean, coming out with the yeah. pandemic, uh, pharmaceuticals, medical technology, you have AI, robotics, connecting perhaps with uh, China 2025 with broader programs for indigenous innovation. Is there something new that comes into play here as well? New areas where they have identified this is where China is going to be sort of strong uh, as an innovation base in, in, in the future. New sectors. Well, a strong emphasis, of course, is on biotechnology. China's aging. Uh, China is certainly not going to get healthier. There are all these uh, diseases that come along with a more affluent uh, society. And China wants to be independent from areas where basically uh, they feel like it can be controlled from outside. And that's the worry that we have. Uh, of course, we understand that China wants to have its battery materials safeguarded so they buy into all kinds of uh, rare earth, uh, rare raw material sources across the world. But at the same time, also uh, China with self-sufficiency or self-reliance in mind is maintaining the production of stuff which I would consider sunset industries. It is highly energy intensive. It's actually uh, something where uh, we have uh, the same production elsewhere, um, uh, say aluminum, say steel, say gasoline. Uh, China doesn't need that many refineries. China is not rich in oil and uh, they are trying to get away from cars. So why do you have so many refineries? Aluminum, why do you have production which is over capacity? 80% of the cost is electricity based on 60 or 70% coal. If you can actually get it from your dear neighbor, Russia, which has aluminum produced on a hydro power basis. So what we're saying, China, is why don't you let go on these areas in order to give space for new technologies, in particular also now space on the energy side. You know, aluminum, really, if you shut them all down, you gain a lot of energy. And now we are all getting basically into trouble across China by having to turn off our factories because they're short of coal, hence short of energy. So in a way, the self-reliance actually comes at a cost. Uh, that means um, I don't have the economic space anymore for new technologies. So there's a conflict they have to resolve. And of course, it comes as a massive problem for their game of um, their aim of uh, peaking carbon in 2030 and carbon neutrality in 2060, if you want to be self-reliant, you keep your steel, you keep your aluminum, you keep your refineries instead of buying it where it might be made cheaper and certainly greener. So, what is China's plan for dealing with its sunset industries? I mean, the, I mean, the fascinating story about China is basically that. It modernized, industrialized uh, in a way where you can basically expand everything at the same time. And then you get into sort of more mature development where suddenly you're not competitive anymore in some of the industries that you could easily expand. You need to facilitate sort of a structural change in the economy where you're going to move from certain type of output to other types of output. Uh, is China still sort of occupied with trying to avoid that structural change? Are they looking sort of at a more extensive use of industrial policies, of regulatory policies in order to basically get more output to move from, from sunset sectors to more advanced sectors? I am also vice chairman of the Chemical Association of China, which is a rare appointment as normally that's a SASAC organization that is kept within Chinese companies. Uh, I'm heading uh, the multinational committee and 
the chairman is the minister of chemicals. Uh, he's, he's my boss in that respect. And we had a great session with him uh, last Monday complaining about the energy shortages because in my sector of chemicals, if you have an energy shortage or even if you turn off the energy, suddenly you have accidents uh, happening. So I said to him, how is that possible that basically China wants to have self-reliance and basically keep everything in the household and then uh, doesn't actually go and reform its economy? And he says, well, the problem is that they don't have any good statistical material for the local governments in order to see who is A-class, who is B-class, who is C-class. Where are the good guys? He said when there's stress in the system and all of a sudden we have to turn off the electricity, the Chinese officials react with one size fits all. You all guys do 30% less. If you are as clean and mean, say, as BMW in the north, or if you are uh, basically as rotten as a little shack somewhere in Zhejiang, it's like you go off by 30%. So they have basically no toolbox to be subtle and sophisticated about who goes down first because there's local interest groups behind it. There are protectionism, of course. I want my chemical site. I want my fertilizer site and so forth. So the country actually is run on a very crude basis. So if you say, you know, China should emphasize on the modern technologies, of course, that's what the minister wants. That was his colleagues in the ministry want. But the problem is, do they have the money for it, the space and the technology and the people for it? And that's where it's getting very, very narrow because smart people went into the service sector because that's when you can make money uh, with very little effort. And frankly, also until recently, very little uh, government supervision. If you're manufacturing, you have the government sitting in front of your door watching out of what you're going to do. So in a way, it's a complete shift in this one. And uh, of course, we want China to say goodbye to Sunset Industries. Uh, China, the ministers, um, my minister, is, is very keen to have that happen in the chemical sector. But he says, you know, it's very hard or next to impossible because this continental-sized uh, uh, country of China has so many different layers of interest groups that make that nearly uh, impossible. So maybe the energy uh, story now might be a catalyst in order to make that happen. But let me give the big picture on this one. China talks about reform, but they want to reformat the economy and society. It's not a reform in the sense, give more to the market forces, give more to the economic players. It's all about more risk control, reformatting the economy. And that's, of course, very alien to us back home in, in Europe. And why do they do this? Well, they are um, <clears throat> scared to lose control. Uh, Chinese officials hate volatility. They had a very tough time in 2015-16 when they opened the uh, capital transfer markets and within 18 months, one trillion US dollar left under whatever principle, you know, I want to invest in Waldorf Astoria, I want to invest in, in, uh, in Volvo maybe, or I want to invest in 150 soccer clubs, always fast track to lose much money. So in a way, uh, the second area where Xi Jinping has draw, draw, uh, learning was the, the capital market, the, the stock exchange. You know, it was 2015 and went up to 5016, then crashed down again to 2000 and hurt a lot of small people um, that actually burned money left and right. So the man is in reformatting mode, not in reform mode. And that's why it's going to be very, very difficult to steer the ship into a different direction. And on, on that note, sort of on control risks, uh, financial crises. I mean, at least Western media has been awash in stories over the past months about 
uh, the real estate sector about Evergrande. I noticed one paper which came out a while ago suggesting that 30% of GDP growth in China is dependent on the real estate sector. So to what extent are sort of the, the type of imbalances that we have talked sort of for a long time about in China, to what, to what extent are they still remaining there in the economy? The guess that I would have is similar to yours, uh, real estate, construction, um, and all the related materials around it might be around 25% of uh, GDP, so it's massive. So um, uh, if, if that sector uh, you know, is sneezing, uh, the world will gonna have a cold, clearly. Um, and so in a way, uh, that has to be deflated because again, exuberance led to the fact that Chinese are buying apartments, not for the sake of living in it, um, far from it. Actually, 90 million apartments are empty, so you can stuff the majority of Europeans into China with no, no problem whatsoever. And uh, it's an investment. I mean, because the, the choice of investment is so limited here and the success story was so good. Now, China, or Xi Jinping in particular, has to educate his people to say enough is enough. 300% of uh, uh, GDP is uh, uh, debt. Um, we cannot go on with this. We have to deleverage. He said that before COVID, it was sort of, um, it, the, he left the economy by itself, but he wants to reconnect again to the deleveraging story. And Evergrande goes down. Uh, there will be many other more real estate companies going down. And of course, it will be walking on eggshells in order to see how they actually can do this without scaring the people. So I guess that they are in deleveraging mode. And victim number one will, of course, be the foreign equity holder, the bondholders. They definitely will get the massive haircut. Um, then you have basically uh, the companies that that is being owed money, uh, the most likely they also will have a massive haircut. Uh, but she definitely, as a good communist, uh, will definitely look into the employment. 163,000 people are working for Evergrande. And of course, into these, I don't know, uh, 50 million people that I've bought into houses and actually are still waiting for them to get delivered to finished, as a matter of fact. So that requires uh, incredible efforts. But the good news about this is that China basically owns everything. That's uh, the, the party owns uh, the companies, the party owns the land, the party owns uh, the banks, uh, and certainly the party owns the news and the media. So uh, it can be contained. There will not be a Lehman Brother effect where trust is gone among economic uh, stakeholders and uh, you have a complete meltdown. This will not happen here. But overall, it will mean it will be very expensive. It will be very very difficult to manage this. I'm sure they can afford this and make it happen, but it comes uh, at an economic cost. But if you benchmark this with the problem that we're facing now, energy shortage, self-inflicted energy shortage, frankly, the damage on the economy there will be much higher than the deflation of Evergrande. All right. We're very soon going to go into issues around the rest of the world and their relation to China. But one final question sort of around China and connecting it also to, to your paper. So um, my question is, here is about China's thinking about innovation. Basically, what is their model of innovation? So you mentioned, for instance, that um, we've had a development in several services sectors where we've seen experimentation, you've seen new entrepreneurs, and possibly some of these entrepreneurs have become sort of uh, uh, too big for China, or they've 
challenged at least some uh, basic basic norms of uh, of economic success in China. So we're now moving sort of more to the manufacturing sector. And when we look there, so what 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 are the thinking here? I mean, what I see is basically money coming from government. So more expenditures on on R and D, helping companies, whether they are state-owned companies, semi state or private companies, helping them with resources. You have lots of different provinces that are throwing their own cash into it, and they want to create industrial parks for this or that sector, and they want to stimulate that, this or that company. But that's that's an input factor, money going into innovation. But what what about the other factors? I mean, you mentioned one thing which I find pretty, pretty striking in the paper, which is on human capital diversity and human diversity in China, and giving a view which I think is pretty. Uh, sort of threatening to the underlying dynamism of Chinese innovation itself, which is that you don't find that much of collaboration with international companies, with human capital exchange, with R&D exchange on corporate levels. So what is the sort of model of innovation from China here? Is it just sort of an input thing, which is that we're going to throw cash on it, or is it something else? Well, it comes. Uh, I would say, you know, it's, uh, fifty shades of grey. Basically, it has uh, a lot of uh, diversity in there. First of all, uh, China's innovation so far was basically focused on business models, uh, adjustments, uh, development of products, uh, and that's actually where then the service sector comes in because there are less constraints, there are less raw materials constraints, there are less approval constraints, and that's why China all of a sudden was a digital wonderland. Because people are very, very innovative over here. They have very good people in that sector actually coming up with stuff. Now, that was not really the case in, in the manufacturing world, where there are very few companies that actually have the, the ability of competing globally, um, and not only a price, but also quality. I mean, Huawei certainly was an extremely successful company. Uh, but again, on the edge of ICT, on the edge of software, and uh, again, they need they need other industries in order to to move forward. Now, the tricky thing is that uh, research requires uh, risk. Uh, the R possibly stands for risk. Uh, you start with a uh, hundred ideas, and normally ninety eight don't work out. Now, to accept that in in a company is very hard for your shareholders also. So you try to limit this to some extent, but in a system which is not looking favorably at failure, that is a real damper on basic research. Um, and uh, so China has developed a very strong development on uh, they're wonderful in adjusting products uh, or uh, putting money there leads to real success to the point where actually as Western managers, uh, we should learn from this one. Um, uh, in I say R&D, but I mean D, uh, development. Uh, China is sometimes twice as fast as we are. Uh, they are sometimes uh, uh, really responding to market trends in incredible fashion. And then, of course, we're falling off the cliff. But when it comes to the technology of the future, um, outside the service sector, it's very, very meager. And China, of course, knows that the government is throwing money at the problem like there's no tomorrow. And creates a new problem because throwing money at a problem means that lots of people actually pretend there's a solution, gets a lot of government funds, and then sort of walk home. 
I mean, there's just 150 uh, electric vehicle companies in China, 150. So uh, the, the question really is, uh, to what extent uh, can they actually make research happen? And as you pointed out, diversity is required, different composition of people, um, not a silo. And uh, you have that to some extent in Shenzhen, where 60% of the uh, population of Shenzhen comes from outside Guangdong. Um, still, we, us foreigners, we are totally insignificant for anything calling diversity. Uh, again, keep in mind there are less foreigners in Beijing and Shanghai put together than in Luxembourg. So the diversity is, is lacking. And of course, there, there is a real problem in uh, getting diversity also connected to the outside world. We as, as a company want to have, of course, a strong relationship with our R&D folks back home or in the US or elsewhere. But now China came up with a, a new data transfer law, a cybersecurity law, which basically requires us to have a Chinese software and hardware, secure and controllable, which already made possibly uh, us very uneasy about, so who is going to look into my R uh, activities? And then, of course, the data transfer, whatever I do in China has to stay in China. And with research, that simply doesn't work this way. So they are presently with a draft of some regulations of the actual imp uh, implementation of laws, killing innovation in a big way, in particular in manufacturing. So it's, again, very strange. Uh, manufacturing has been emphasized, but the future of manufacturing is being undermined by uh, lack of electricity or lack of uh, security for people to, to react. So my guess is innovation in China will now see a very small R and a capital fat D, and uh, that is possibly an indicator that China's punching below its uh, innovation weight. All right. So let's talk about China and the world. So a growing part of the world is formulating new policies that aim at countering Chinese economic practices or managing the long-term geopolitical consequences from China's rise and role in the Indo-Pacific region. So there is talk about decoupling, as you mentioned, and this talk, I think, is pretty strong in America, not so much in Europe, more in America. Here in Europe, we are developing sort of many different contingent and defensive policy tools that are targeting Chinese policies. So let's talk about where this development may take us in the future and how China views uh, this development and what it means for uh, its policy choices. So in the first place, is China worried about a development where it may see its own export market shrink because other governments are closing their markets to Chinese exporters? Well, we covered part of this in the decoupling uh, study. If you go on the website of the chamber, you can basically uh, download it, uh, no paywall, free of charge, no membership, whatnot. Uh, if you have a problem, maybe everybody can sort of uh, pester Frederick and ask him to ask him to send him these reports. Decoupling is first and foremost on their, on their mind uh, uh, with a worry because decoupling might mean sanctions, might mean higher tariffs, might mean that China is economically being challenged. At the same time, decoupling is good if it actually is referring to the mental stage of mind, meaning uh, information, the firewall, the kind of lack of exchange with universities. Uh, we have a near complete collapse in cooperation of universities here because we have an incredibly high firewall on quarantine and people coming in here. It's really uh, dramatic of what's uh, going on here. The exchange of ideas is limited to a couple of online sessions, and there even you can't really 
work together in a, in a, in a good ma manner. So the kind of decoupling in the head is actually more worrisome than the economic uh, decoupling. And that, of course, leads also to plenty of uh, misunderstandings. China is totally flabbergasted on how negative the world is looking at China. And we are totally flabbergasted about the fact how China is talking to the world how they're treating the world, a kind of assertiveness that we haven't seen there. Particularly myself, I've been here 30 plus years. I came the first time to China in 1982. I've never seen any like this, this kind of nationalism, the kind of assertiveness. And it's very hard to tell them, guys, you know, it, uh, uh, you are basically driving this kind of us against them. They, of course, see the U.S. behind each and everything, that the U.S. is masterminding a containment strategy, uh, there might be some truth to it, but um, it comes from somewhere. And uh, I guess uh, China's uh, policy went from accommodating to assertiveness because they thought they could get away with that. Or maybe the president was in a hurry. He's not 50 years anymore. And so there we are. It's, it's dramatic. Uh, the Pew research shows that China swung in most countries from 60 to 70 percent favorably viewed by these populations uh, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, to now 70 to 80 percent negative. And of course, the cake is taken by Korea and Japan, which are 85 and 82 percent negative. So in a way, China is narrowing its political space outside. Are they worried about the export markets? I don't think so, because it's a hugely sized domestic economy and they might not be as, as, as relevant anymore for exporting things. They can basically uh, sacrifice GDP growth against self-reliance and stick to this one. But uh, I guess uh, the, the, the part of the population that is definitely worried is the elite. These people made money. These people brought innovation to China. These people was connecting to the outside world. But these guys possibly have uh, slightly more different political ideas than the leadership. And our leadership here basically turned anti-establishment. You can see that with uh, Jack Ma and others. So in a way, it's, it feels like uh, China's turning its back on the world, which would be great uh, pity, not only economically, but also uh, culturally. But uh, it seems to be very, very uh, content with doing this. Uh, you cannot explain otherwise that wolf warriors, meaning the ambassadors, are basically offending their host countries left and right. Uh, ambassadors here, European ambassadors, get bullied in virtually every meeting. Uh, this, this is not building bridges anymore. They talk about building bridges but uh, certainly the language is not up to it. And again, it seems to be like, all right, you know, if the world is against us, maybe I can sell it better to my population, it's us against them, and then they assemble behind me and we're all in there together. Maybe it's a power-stabilizing mechanism. Is that also the explanation to sort of another conundrum, which is that, I mean, it's not just that China and its um, bull for diplomats are making enemies, how, sort of how to make enemies and alienate people seems to be sort of the, 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 the core standard for some of them, but also that they seem to have made a couple of strategic errors that in broader strategy, which also must limit the space for China to act in future. I mean, for a long time, they, they had sort of a pretty robust understanding of, of the country and itself, which was, you know, biding the time, using the fact that they don't need to accelerate any different issues of conflict because China is just going to get bigger and bigger. And these problems would almost solve themselves in the future. Now yeah. we have sort of Hong Kong. Uh, we're getting reactions from United States, sort of the, the August. We have Europeans getting more worried about what's going in there. And they all 
even if they choose different strategies for dealing with the issues, they are basically in alignment when it comes to what the problem is. And, and that is going to have consequences for China's own options in the future. Yeah. Again, I think uh, that some people in the leadership are very content with the fact that the world is turning against them, meaning they can uh, sell it to the average people. And, you know, it could be 1.3 billion people, 100 million maybe don't believe this, but it's sort of like the world is after us. So, you know, support the Communist Party. We're in for a fight. We're in for a struggle. The language indicates that uh, these days over here, everything is a struggle. Um, and, and that reminds uh, me of, of the uh, 60s uh, and, and 50s, where everything was a struggle too, and struggle first against Americans and a struggle against the Soviets. Uh, and uh, it was sort of, you know, how to keep power in the family that actually you can get away with this one. And again, they might easily sacrifice economic growth of this one. They can shave it off from the top, put it in the bottom and so forth. What worries me there is the kind of sense, uh, loss of realism uh, that I can sense in the leadership, the kind of uh, well-educated and uh, empathetic leadership that actually understood how the world is ticking. Now it becomes more of a binary view on the world. There is China and there is the United States. And of course, the United States is mandamining all these little minor countries uh, like uh, uh, France, Germany, and, and, and others. They're all the poodles of the United States. I mean, the most, I hear it again and again, the Americans are making this, making Germany do this. And I said, guys, you know, we have our own foreign policy and, and we're not a, a pushover, but that's how they see it. Recently, I was asked by one of these top advisors, does Germany have an Indian independent foreign policy. And I says, of course not. Uh, we combine it in Brussels. No, 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 no. This is not what I meant. I mean, how independent from the White House? Lithuania is a case, you know, where they thought that uh, the Lithuanians only did this, getting out of 17 plus one, having this Taiwan uh, office, because they got a lot of money from the USA. They have no clue about what actually the Lithuanians went through in all these decades. And then, for example, this investment agreement, you know, I tell them, guys, you know, that was so off, obviously something U.S. against Europe. Um, the U.S. didn't want it, wait for us, the outgoing as well as the incoming administration. It was a really hot Christmas uh, last, uh, last year. Um, and we got it going, you know, we got it signed. And, uh, and then uh, 12 weeks later, uh, with oversized, still rich uh, sanctions against Europe, they made this deal impossible. And so I said, you know, we, we really don't understand. The U.S. comes up with sanctions at a certain level, no problem. Same level back from the U.S., uh, from the Chinese to the U.S. The Europeans come back, come up with equally sized uh, sanctions, a little bit weaker. So it looks nice, but it's really not hurting China. And China comes back with the mother of all sanctions. And uh, not only five parliamentarians that are supposed to approve the investment agreement, but it went on into uh, commission uh, bodies and so forth. So you ask yourself, what's wrong with them? You know, how could they let this happen? What is happening with the foreign ministry? They should know it. They have, the Chinese have an excellent ambassador in Brussels. Jiang Ming is really no wolf warrior. He's a pearl in, in the whole collection of ambassadors there. And I'm really worried uh, as he's going to retire at uh, beginning of next year, uh, who they're going to dispatch then. But it's, it's really like the echo chamber is asking for a binary view on the world. And if they can't see it as, uh, you know, a European own thinking, it's because the Americans are behind it. And I guess this uh, loss of realism will lead to many policy mistakes. So in, in that context, where does um, 
Kai, the investment in agreement, where does it sit now in Chinese discussions? I mean, as you say, I mean, remarkable how they mismanaged this entire episode just sort of a couple of months after they signed the agreement. And they should have yes. known that this was going to have pretty serious consequences on the European side. Well, so, I, I, what do they think about Kai? I mean, have they already written it off? Do they think <laughs> there are constructive things to do with Europe? It is, it is really a big question mark. After all, Kai was put together by Merkel, and Merkel has a very high reputation over here. Uh, Merkel uh, came up with a deadline, uh, end of the year. Uh, she is having the presidency of the European Council, hence that's when you can get it going. And she got it going against huge, severe backlash uh, from, from the U.S. and others uh, in Europe. And, and so instead of saying, okay, uh, let's make sure that this survives, let's mastermind the sanctions and don't touch the parliament. No, full-fledged out five from six parties, major parties in the European Parliament, they picked five parliamentarians from each party just to make sure that everyone is miffed. So uh, it is just, it's just mind-blowing. And uh, I guess they came to the conclusion at the very top is the Europeans wanted more uh, than, the, uh, than we in China. Uh, they benefit more. Uh, which I would solidly say it's not the case. I mean, it was a very shallow uh, soup uh, that we got offered there, but better a shallow soup than just water or nothing. So in a way, we in business wanted it, we supported it, and we had bitterly disappointed how China makes no effort in order to rectify this. It is dormant. I mean, they're vetting the language, but my picture for that is always the Kais between an ICU and a morgue. Uh, we don't know which direction it's moving. Uh, it's a great pity. It, it just has really soured the relationship. And again, it, it says a lot about China's view on Europe uh, that they say, guys, you know, it, if you are from a minor region or country uh, such as Canada, Australia or the European Union, you have to get punished far more severe than we would punish the equally important United States. So in, in a way, it just tells you how they look at the world and we have to uh, see how we deal with this. Uh, certainly, we have to draw our conclusions from this one. We should look at this as a Sputnik moment. It's like if China doesn't listen to us anymore, we should continue talking to them and listening. But actually, we have to get our homework going. We should grow ourselves because China's not waiting for us. Yeah, no, indeed. Looking at, uh, I mean, we mentioned several times United States in this discussion um, and looking at sort of U.S. actions and how these actions may have consequences for Europe and also for European businesses in, in, in China. So where, where do you think United States will be going? I mean, we had a important uh, speech given by Ambassador Tai uh, earlier this week on on China, where she on the one hand, sort of reflected on the Trump administration's policies and the agreements that have been done with China and concluded that, well, they hadn't really delivered much. And that, of course, is also comes out from uh, broader trade data when you look at US-China uh, trade relations, that if they wanted uh, to use these measures in order to reduce the bilateral trade deficit with China, they certainly failed on on, on that ambition. But it's there, there. There are more, at least in my mind, confusions about. So, what, what, where will America go next? Uh, what type of, of of policy will they find? In this case, more on trade and economic policy uh, with China. 
I guess that uh, the U.S. Uh, has this gene. Once it kicks in, it's very hard uh, to make it undo. This, this competitive gene is like they, they challenge me, I'm going to hit back. And so I don't see any easing in the relationship, uh, in particular also as there seems to be just one topic which combines, uh, which uh, the Democrats and the Republicans agree upon, that's China. So Biden would actually be ill-advised in order to just use that topic in order to drive an amicable China policy. So I guess that it's going to be a realistic policy of keeping the tension high, at the same time trying not to spill over into something hot or uncontrollable. Uh, but the tension is not going to go away. That's also the view from Beijing. Beijing doesn't trust the U.S. at all. Again, they always believe that they are behind everything, besides the point that Europe has no own opinion. So that in itself already narrows the view of what can be achieved. So we will find a little bit of cyclical improvement, but the long direction is definitely more of tensions, and I hope it's not going to be a slippery slope downhill. But it's, it's going to be tight for a long, long time to come, uh, I'm afraid. Now, is, is that something that the U.S. wants? I don't think so. I, I guess that actually the Americans really want to have China to integrate itself herself into the global order, uh, which then is partly controlled by the U.S. But uh, China has no such a thing. Uh, the systems uh, are too different. The size is too similar. There is no uh, accommodation on either side. I, don't, I really don't see this uh, happening anytime soon. By the way, on this phase one deal, I mean, I found it horrible. You know, I always got reminded in December, why do you support the Kai? And I said the Kai is wonderful because it doesn't have a shopping list attached to it. You know, and, and a totally unreasonable shopping list. When you look into the kind of energy China pledged to buy, actually they might now do a lot because they have to buy less at a much, much higher price. But um, it is interesting to see that actually the U.S. says, you have to help me to bridge my deficit instead of saying maybe I should have my manufacturing sector up and running again so that I can match Chinese uh, products uh, again. I don't like this thing. I like the, uh, the technical parts of the agreement, IPR, the kind of uh, looking into consensus in certain areas of uh, economic structure, but I really dislike this, this part. So if China has been not fulfilling that part, I couldn't care less because uh, why should China buy some, something from someone forced to buy it if they can get it cheaper and better elsewhere. All right. Very good. Uh, thank you very much, Jörg. Um, we are getting close towards the end, and I'm going to pick up a few questions that I've received in the chat during the conversation. I mean, there are far more questions than we will be able to cover, but, but one which I thought was very interesting and concerns uh, demography and age in China. So the, the age pyramid, the fact that it's, it's an increasingly aging society what type of pressures is both the party and the economy confronted with now because of the changing demography? It is huge pressure. It's really something that worries them big time. They, they find very little space in order to rectify this. I mean, the one, China, one child policy has been going on way too long. And now basically you can have as many children as you want, uh, but no one can afford it. Again, the whole idea about tutorials, the whole idea about uh, getting uh, kids uh, uh, an affordable uh, living space, uh, real estate. I mean, who can afford all of that? Again, 90 million apartments empty. Just imagine how many people could actually from the countryside go in there. So uh, aging is, is and the demographics is, is really terrible. It comes, of course, with health cost increases. It comes with uh, loss of innovation and so forth. Uh, and they, they really, it's, it's possibly one of the biggest thing on their mind 
behind the American issue uh, because it is it is like a like a tectonic uh, uh, shift. It's, it's you can't control it. It's it's going to happen. It's going to be there. Um, and and when you look into how China is looking at India, you know India might be uh, 1.6, 1.7 billion people in in 60 years from now. China might be below 1 billion people and very old people on top of it. How much innovation do you get out of this? But they're also equally worried about the unemployment in the youth. That is uh, staggering more than 20% on the kids that actually graduate, don't find a job or a proper job. And uh, that, of course, is a restive, aggressive part of society. Uh, and, and the leadership here clearly is worried what these guys are up to. Hence, uh, they want to cut their time on gaming, they want to have a proper education. So again, again and again, I see very good uh, areas of that have been defined as a trouble spot, uh, but I'm always missing the solutions. Will there be better schools? Will there be better paid teachers? Will there be better sports facilities? All of the above. Uh, will the kids be able to travel easier abroad in order to get education there? All of that is not being indicated. So it's basically the toolbox in many ways, as justified as the targets are, contains only one thing, and that's the sledgehammer. What about China's application to join the CPTPP, uh, which um, at least came as a big surprise to many who have followed the discussions around both uh, that agreement itself and China's views on it? Is it, is it sort of a good faith application? No, it's not. It's totally unrealistic. Uh, China wants to be in the game. It wants to have a finger in the pie. Um, and I guess they knew that Taiwan is going to apply, so I think they wanted to preempt it. So absolutely irrelevant. Are, are they considering sort of other trade initiative to take with countries in the region? I mean, I, I suppose at some point they they will feel a pressure coming from CPTPP, from AUKUS, perhaps uh, other things that America and Western countries are going to do in the region. Do they feel sort of compelled to a value proposition to other countries in the region about engaging with China? Certainly, they will reach out to ASEAN. They will certainly make sure that the Americans don't have an easy time to reconnect with Southeast Asia. But at the same time, uh, the dragon looks like a dragon. It has fire like a dragon and it sounds like a dragon. So all these countries, be it Vietnam, be it Malaysia, all had their uh, experience. Uh, and so nobody wants to offend China. Nobody wants to choose between China and the United States, but the South China Seas, just if you look at the map, that settles the questions. They're all scared uh, how to deal with this uh, big uh, big country that seems to be inattentive and not listening mode anymore. So I guess uh, that uh, for us as Europeans, uh, there could be a great opportunity to engage more. I guess we should have a little bit more of a robust, self-confident foreign policy uh, supported by a trade policy. We have a lot to offer, and we are big. We are much bigger than the U.S. in foreign direct investment. The stock of direct investment from Europe is staggering, 11.6 trillion U.S. dollars. Uh, the U.S. has 6.8. China has a measly 1.9 trillion U.S. dollars uh, invested abroad, and Japan, surprisingly, only at 1.5. If you look into an economic heavyweight globally, it's European Union. I'm not sure anybody knows it back home. Yeah, no, I, I think there is a, a huge educational effort to be made there, indeed. And I think, Jörg, that's actually going to be the final words from our session here today. It's been great talking to you, as always. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. And again, I mean, congratulations to all the fantastic work you're doing at the Chamber. 
Very nice. Thank you very much for the invitation. See you, I hope, in Brussels, I don't know when, maybe 2023. I don't think they'll open up next year. All right, take care, all my right. Frederick. Thank you so much. And also thank you to all of you that have participated in our event. Um, we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you and have a good day.